Hello, that's Sarah. And that's Emily. And this is Lightweight True Crime. how to make it make this sound against my microphone yeah good thing i got my mom and dad here to teach me yeah hey this is lightweight true crime yeah it's a podcast where two girls share a drink and a story what are we drinking tonight sarah we are um we're drinking some chardonnay some talbot 2017 uh estate grown chardonnay and uh it took about one sip into this drink for us to learn that emily not not a chardonnay girl if you like Chardonnay, you might like this. But if you don't like Chardonnay, I do not recommend this. Emily literally just gulped some down to, quote, loosen up before the podcast because she didn't want to take. Like, I heard gulping noises. I didn't want to taste it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge Chardonnay. Well, I'm more of a red wine person. Mm-hmm. I'll drink whites. Um, but I'm more, but Chardonnay is not my favorite. But this is actually pretty good because some Chardonnay is like, I don't know, it this is buttery and smooth in a way that denotes good Chardonnay. This is now turned into a, a, a wine, wine snob, tasting podcast. Uh, podcast. You know, I think I could like reds. I just don't like drinking warm liquid. Okay. So here's the trick to that. I realize now that I'm, um, that I listen back to our podcast that I managed to bring up my grandparents like once an episode, but listen, it's they were fine. important to me. Um, so Donna always drank her red wine with ice in it. And she always used to say, don't tell the wine people. <laughs> um, but that's, and now that's what my mom that's does funny. too. So if you want to drink red I'll tr- wine, I'll try it for Donna. Yeah. And I always knew when she was walking over to our side of the house, cause she also had a tremor. And so she'd be holding her wine glass <laughs> with the shake. ice in it and you'd hear this Clink, 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 clink. It's like, oh, grandma's coming over. It's coming over. So my mom used to drink Riesling cut with Seven Up, and my <laughs> oh my god, yeah, my grandpa was a huge wine snob, and that used to kill him. I've never when she heard would do that of mixing wine with anything. It's like a white wine spritzer. I can know right? that. Like champagne and Seven Up makes sense to me. Riesling, that's a. But hey, whatever. I don't know. Whatever she likes. Whatever Tootie likes, Tootie gets. Tootie loves her wine. She's is Tootie her legal name? No. What is her name? Um, I'm going to make you bleep this out, Ryan. Oh, my gosh. So, oh, and Mary yeah. Emily. Okay. Yeah. So where did Tootie come from? It was my grandma's nickname growing up. Okay. And so when my grandparents got married, my grandpa was like, I'm not calling you Tootie. That's weird. I'm calling you Mary. And then when my mom was born, she was Mary. And he was like... Well, my wife's name is Mary. I'm not going to call her Mary, so I'm going to call her Tootie. So it was just a nickname reassigned. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So I'm a Mary. Yes. My mom is a Mary. My grandma's a Mary. And then on my dad's side, his mom's name is Mary. Oh, my his gosh. His sister's name is Mary. Her daughter's name is Mary. Wow. So <laughs> on both sides. Ryan just goes white people. It's true. It's true, <laughs> yeah. though. Yeah. My mom's name is Mary. Oh, yeah. That's right. We yeah. talked about that. We were meant to be. Yeah. Is she Scottish or uh, Irish? Irish. Irish Catholic. Yeah. It's a Scottish-Irish thing. Listen, they love the Virgin. Yeah. Mary Elizabeth, Mary yep. Margaret. Yeah. That's, yeah, Mary Susan. Marys. 
Yeah. That's hilarious. My So my mom, her parents were going to name her Susan after my grandpa's mother. But then um, a nun, so they were Catholic. That's I've, right. I've told you this, right? Yeah. I don't think I don't you think told, told me on the podcast. podcast. Um, a nun walked up to my grandma when she was pregnant with my mom and said, that baby's going to be born on the Immaculate Conception. I feel like maybe I have told this on the podcast. Maybe. Now that I'm thinking about it. Anyway, and she was two weeks late. And so they're like, shit, we have to name her Mary because yeah. she was born on this Catholic holy day. So that's how that happened. That's um, nuts. Yeah. Super nuts. So not a lot of creativity in yeah. among the whites. <laughs> no, we, we're not very creative people. Um, yeah. So we had a big weekend. We did. I'm still tired. Yeah. Me too. Like I... I go on like a walk every day <laughs> the, from here to the park and back is a mile and a half. Sure. But I'm exhausted. We, for those who don't know, we went to the Los Angeles Women's March 2020. Yes. If you're listening to this, the Women's March was about a month ago. But yeah. for us, <laughs> it was two days ago. But we were there. We were there. We marched. It, it was, was cool. It was so fun. We went with a bunch of our friends. And yeah. I like one of my, it's like my favorite day of the year. And yeah. I always take the train in and I just love seeing all these young women and like their moms and you know groups of yeah. older women get getting on the train with their signs yeah. um it just it gives me so much hope for the future like the first year I stayed in LA with family and tr- tried to take the train to Pershing Square and it was so crowded like the trains were so crazy that you couldn't get on any train that stopped oh my god but I'll never forget like walking down into the, into the train station and all these little girls in their like future president t-shirts oh. and just like crying yeah it's like we're gonna be okay yeah um so yeah lots of important um activism that was being done this weekend and we got to be a teeny teeny tiny tiny part, part of that, that which we're proud I of know. i know and i brought our son with us and that was fun that was so great because like he got to see all of that yeah and we had a sign that said future feminist and literally everyone with a press badge took a picture yeah, we're and really excited we're to see his picture now, probably. Uh, in some publication. But we're millennials, yeah. so we won't see it in any it's print true. publications. Yeah. yeah, no, it was so great to have him there. Um, and also, I like to think of your son as like a current feminist as well. Like if yeah. he could voice it. I just don't want to. Yeah, he just hasn't said it yet because he just doesn't know words. <laughs> he, ha- <laughs> he hasn't been like, Mom, I understand the three waves of feminism. Let me break them down yeah. for you and why I am committed to their tenets personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, no. will. It, he will. I hear that comes right after potty training. Yeah, which we're not there yet, Joey. Well, cool. Neato. Sounds good. Yeah. Do you have a a true crime story to tell me? I do. Can't wait. This is the Lucasville prison riot of 1993. Ooh, I love a good prison riot. So I got, Ryan just gasped, probably something about basketball. Um, So I got most of my information from the Netflix documentary show called Captive. Oh, that's right. You did the last episode. Yeah, last episode I did a story from there about the um, Abu Sayyaf. Um, that show is really incredible. I've only watched those two episodes, but they're amazing. And so I assume the rest of them are amazing too. And then like the other information I just got from like Wikipedia, just kind of filling in some of the blanks. Um, so the Lucasville prison is actually called Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. Um, but everybody refers to it as Lucasville because it's in the city of Lucasville, Ohio. Um, and it was built in 1972 
and it created 400 jobs for the city of Lucasville, which was a small mining town that really struggled after the Depression. Um, and the prison was planned to house about 1,600 inmates, and it cost $23 million to build. Wow. Um, I should have looked up what that is in today's money. When was but it built? 1972. It cost 28 million in 1972. 23. 23 still. Yeah. Lord. So it probably cost about 100 billion dollars. 1 billion trillion. Yeah. Um and a year after it opened, um two guards were killed. So this this um jail has a little bit of a history. Um so after that um, in April 1976, which is about four years after it opens, the inmates went on a three-day hunger strike. They didn't say what for. I don't know if they got what they were striking for or anything. Um, and then a year after that, in July of 1977, two inmates sued the state for cruel and unusual punishment and overcrowding. Um, and then in 1990, an inmate killed one of his teachers. Um, so these are just some of the things that have happened in Lucasville so far. Um and up until 1993, Lucasville was known by inmates and prison workers as basically like a place of anarchy. There was like no rules. Nothing was really enforced. Um, in the Netflix show, they interview some of the um, the inmates who were there at the time. Um, and one of them was like, there, there were more drugs in Lucasville than there are on the streets. Like you could get whatever you wanted in there. People were running around with no clothes on. Like the cells were never locked. The guards were a part of everything. Um, and somebody on the show, I can't remember if it was an inmate or a guard, had said that it's a wonder that the riot didn't kick off way before it did. So everybody kind of knew that this this prison, Lucasville, was like a shitstorm waiting to happen. Um, and so around this time, around um, 1993, um, the state transferred um, Arthur Tate to Lucasville as the warden. Um, and so he was kind of known as a warden, um, that was going to try and reform it. Um, so they brought him in so that he could try and I know my phone went off too. Come on, Sarah. I'm really sorry. So they brought Arthur Tate in to kind of reform it. They knew he could kind of put some systems into place. Um, and he described it as the creme de la creme of challenges for himself. (laughs) So not quite sure what that hey, means if you like a challenge him, you know, then yeah. yeah um and when he arrived there were 2100 inmates and each cell was 10 and a half feet by six and a half feet so the prison was built to hold 1600 inmates that's so there almost, were 500 more people there than yeah. it was built for that's so heinous most cells had two people in a 10 and a half by six and a half foot half foot cell wow that is like so small that's like the size of a closet that's I have so many awful, awful yeah. thoughts about the prison industrial complex, but yes, keep going. Yes. That's why I'm doing this first yes. so that you can have a silver lining <laughs> story. Um, and in the first five days that Tate was there, three inmates had their throats cut. So wow. this was like just a nutso place to be. Um, and in order to try and regain control, Tate does, had, he said he had to make some really tough decisions, obviously. Um, he had to create a lot of regulations, including mandatory drug tests and escorted movement everywhere, which are things that these inmates were not used to. They were used to drugs just being everywhere and being able to go wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted. So it was already, there was already a lot of tension, um, when Arthur Tate came in and started creating these things, which needed to be there. Um, 
So in April of 1993, the state was requiring that all inmates be tested for tuberculosis. And if you've never gotten a TB test, they have to do like that injection right under your skin to create a little bubble. And then a couple days later, they come and see if it was red or not. And what's in that injection, the base of it is some kind of alcohol. And so a bunch of the Muslim inmates were like, we're not going to do that. That's against our religion. Um, and Tate went to the state department and was like, Hey, there's a bunch of these guys in here who are saying they're not going to do it. And the state was basically like, figure it out. They Mm. didn't give him any assistance at all. So he was kind of in this place where some inmates were saying they weren't going to do it, but the state was telling him, you have to get every single inmate to do this TB test. So he decided that the Monday after Easter, they were going to shut the whole prison down. They were going to put everyone in their cells and they were going to administer the TB tests in, in the cells. Um, the inmates got word of this plan and they were mad for two reasons. The first reason is that the Muslims were being forced to take this test, which was a huge infringement. Infringement. In, oh, my God. <laughs> infringement. There it is. Of their religious freedoms. Obviously, you you can't force somebody Listen, to do Emily, something that's against their we religion. Only care about religious freedom when it's for white Christians. Every, anything else is just basically Sharia law, right? Being you know enforced in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Story's over. So that's the it. End. Let's wrap this up. Well, there were actually a group of other inmates who were mad because administering the tests in their cells meant that the actual tests were going to be outside of a fridge for. A long period of time which they were like who knows how long they're outside of the fridge they could be like contaminated and could get us sick or whatever so a lot of the muslims were upset because of that and then a lot of the other inmates were like you can't just inject us with random stuff um so the inmates who weren't cool with it were like we're gonna do a peaceful protest on easter sunday because they knew that it was going to be a light guard shift they knew that Tate wasn't going to be there and they knew that a lot of the guards took the day off to be with their family um and so on Easter Sunday April 11th 1993 um the show actually interviews one of the inmates who worked in like the rec department there and he helped um a group of the Muslim inmates smuggle out all the baseball bats that they had just thinking like it's going to be a peaceful protest they're going to smash some stuff but they're not going to hurt anybody smuggle out or smuggle in out of the oh, like rec, out of the center. rec center okay yeah. i got gotcha. you sorry so so peaceful protest minus some smashing right sure. yeah, okay. yeah yeah but you know they're not gonna hurt anybody. protest light correct yeah. um and he says that like right after they left the rec department they start like beating the officers mm-hmm. with these baseball bats um and um i lost my place so One of the people that they interview is a corrections officer named Mike Hensley, and he was a veteran and he was brand new to the job. And he got a call on his radio that there was a fight in the corridor. So right when those inmates started beating the guards um, with the baseball bats, he gets a call and the inmates see him running and they stop him. They're like, you should not go down there. You're going to get hurt. Like they're, they're looking out for him kind of, but it's his job. So he goes down there and he sees these officers being beat and then they end up, the officers end up being handcuffed. Um, and I put this part in just because it's my favorite, but it's not too important. But the show inmate inmates that interviews this inmate, 
that wine i should not have chugged it <laughs> um Dwayne gynes i don't know how to say his last name but um they interview him he was an inmate at the time um and he's talking about when the fights initially broke out and he's like i was just trying to make make my way back to my cell to get my weed because i was <laughs> so stressed and the way he says it is just hilarious he's like i don't care what they're doing i don't want to be part of this i just got to go get my medicinal marijuana because i'm having some anxiety um and so the first thing that the inmates who kind of start the riot, the first thing they do is they find these inmates who are labeled as snitches and they immediately kill these inmates oh my so gosh what was supposed to be a peaceful protest is like immediately not a peaceful protest. How many protest. people did they kill? Or they, how many snitches did they kill? They killed eight. <gasps> so within oh. like the first hour of this wow. protest, it becomes an all out riot. Um, and then they break into the office and they burn all the files that are in there. Um, they knew that it wasn't like the only file on them that they, they knew like the state had files on them and everything, but they figured that, once the police came in, it would add time to like the process. So they knew it was going to slow the process oh, yeah. down. And this of is like early 90s, so stuff yeah, isn't digitized. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of inmates didn't know what was going on because there were maybe like 20 at the most of these inmates who are going through and burning these things and finding the snitches. And so there's a ton of other inmates who are like, we don't know what's going on. It's kind of causing you know chaos um and then so there's a lot of them who just kind of go back to their cells and they're not sure who to trust um and then at this point the officers who hadn't already been captured go to the safe room there's a safe room in the jail that is supposed to be for officers in case there's a riot they're supposed to be able to go in there and lock themselves in the room and they'd be safe um the walls around the safe room were supposed to be like reinforced with like lots of rebar and it wasn't. So they show pictures of how they like broke in to the room and it's literally just like a hole in the cinder block next to the door. So these inmates, I don't know what they used, but they used something to tear the wall down to get to these officers. Wow. Um, if you're into this kind of stuff, if you're into like, if you're into true crime, honestly. So if you're listening to this, you should definitely go watch that show purely because the footage of them going in immediately after the riot is nuts. Like you cannot see the floor anywhere. It's filled with files and garbage. All the bunks are pulled out. You see like all these holes in the walls and it's just amazing to think like people did this. Like these people who are so strong literally tore down cinder blocks. Anyways, so they get all the all the officers and they blindfold them and they cuff them and they put them in inmates clothes and they split them up. So there's three major groups that are involved in this on this block. So on the L block, the black gangster disciples, the black Muslims and the Aryan Brotherhood. So the three of these groups are working together in this riot, wow. which is so crazy because <laughs> they're like, this isn't a race thing. Yeah. This is a prison versus the system <laughs> thing. I know. Um, so they split up the officers and they kind of switch back and forth to try and throw them off. Um, and they because they knew that if there was an attack on the prison, they knew to kill the officers first. So this this group of these three 
gangs, for lack of a better term, are all on the same page working together. Um, And so by 5.50 of the same day, so of Easter, April 11th, the entire prison is surrounded by highway patrol and the Department of Corrections state officials. And the goal was the preservation of life. So they they knew that they were going to have the officers hostage. So they weren't just going to immediately rush it. Um, so they were hoping to be able to stabilize the situation and begin negotiations as soon as possible. So immediately the FBI goes into the tunnels underneath and they're able to like somehow bug the prison so they can try and listen in and they cut the electricity and the water, hoping that the inmates would be eager to negotiate. Um, and then the first night they start carrying the bodies out. And everyone who's watching, because at this point, a lot of the families of the officers are there too, have no idea what's going on. And you can you hear them talking over like the tape, like, what is that? What are they doing? And then they're like, oh my God, those are bodies. Like, what is that? And it takes them a while to figure out, okay, that's none of our officers. All of our officers are still alive or inside. Um, And that's later when they realize that those were the bodies of the quote unquote snitches. Um, and George, who is the leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, um, comes out um, on Tuesday. So it's been like two days. He comes out to the yard with a megaphone and he tells the authorities that they want to negotiate um, and that if they try to storm the place, that they have eight officers that they're going to kill immediately. Um, so George becomes like the negotiator, the liaison between the inmates and the Department of Corrections. And his first request is for water and lights, and they want to talk on the news. Um, and if they can get those three things, they'll give them two hostages. Um, and the people um, who were like the FBI negotiators are like, okay, we'll work on it. Um, and they kind of like drag their feet, thinking like, okay, they're going to like, you know, tell us that they're going to give us three hostages or whatever. And they don't really do anything about it for a couple days. So on the fifth day, um, nothing's moving forward. And the inmates hang a sheet out of one of the windows that says you have three and a half hours to give us water, electricity, and a news broadcast or we're going to kill an officer. Three and a half is a very specific number. I know. I don't know why. Why did you throw the half in there? I don't know. Interesting. Okay. Um, And one of the people who worked for the Department of Corrections goes on the news Um, And somebody asks them, like, aren't you worried about this threat? And she's like, no, it's an empty threat. They're not actually going to do this. We're going to let we're going to like wait it out. You know, that feels ill advised. And so they have in the inmates have a radio in there. So they're listening to everything and they're like, all right. She thinks it's a bluff. We're going to prove to her it's not. So they end up killing one of the officers. And he's an officer that the inmates actually really liked. He was peaceful he was kind yeah um his name was i'm gonna try this valandigham valandigham v-a-l-l-a-n-d-i-g-h-a-m okay um and netflix has his wife on the show and she talks about him and they show pictures and he's the classic like 90s dad like thick mustache and he just looks like he's somebody who really cared about his job and was there. Um, and it's just such a tragedy that he was, I mean, obviously if any of the hostages 
died, it would have been a tragedy, but he was somebody who even the inmates really liked. Um, so after that, the negotiators move really fast to get the inmates what they want because they realize, all right, they're not bluffing. Um, and the first, the first thing that happens is they're like, okay, we'll give you, um, some radio time. And so George, um, and one of the guards named Daryl Clark, they meet the negotiators on the yard, um, with somebody with like all the equipment to like broadcast on the radio. And George is communicating that they want to get coverage of what their situation was like in prison. Um, he, the way he's like talking is he's just trying to get everything out really fast and he doesn't really get his point across very well. Um, they have like a ton of things that they want to see changed in the prison system. Um, but he's not communicating it great. But after that, he sets Clark free. So they have one hostage that's been set free. So they're like, all right, we need to like keep working with them, give them what they want. Um, and while they're trying to figure out what else they can give them, um, this is day six now. One of the inmates, I'm sorry, one of the hostages was with a group of inmates who are the black Muslims. And he says, hey, I'll convert to Islam if you let me go. Wow. And they're like, all right, cool. So they end up releasing him and he comes out in like full traditional Islamic clothing. Um, they make him say like on the news, like, yeah, I converted. I'm a Muslim now. Um, and a lot of people like like Arthur Tate, the warden, is like super skeptical. A lot of people are like, Obviously, he's just saying what he's right, saying just to a get out, move, yeah. you know, um, but even though like most people knew that a lot of the people who worked at the Department of Corrections turned their back on him, which is super strange to me because why? Like, obviously, he's doing what he has to do to get out of there. Why would you to stay alive? Right. Not support them. And so immediately after that, he comes back on the news like also who cares? Right. If it's genuine. Right. Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. So he comes back on the news in his regular clothing and the newscaster who's like interviewing him is like, I just want to clarify like what you said earlier. You didn't mean he's like, yeah, of course not. Like I said, whatever I had to say to get out of there. Like I said, everything I said under duress, like they said they would set me free if I did this. I wanted to be free. Um, and then they ask him like, do you think that you'll be able to like go back to work on Monday? Like that this isn't going to affect you. And he was like, honestly, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know why you asked that. Yeah. That's a and dumb it's question. like, if I were him, like I'd go find a different career. Yeah. Cause that is just so such a huge tragedy and so traumatic that has happened to him. Obviously yeah, we'd be taking some personal days. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. a couple. I'm going to take my vacation time. Yeah. Um, so, on the ninth day, it's been nine days of this prison riot. Um, for some reason, George steps down as the negotiator and Jason Robb, who's also part of the Aryan Brotherhood, steps up as the inmate negotiator. And he's known as the mayor. Um, and he says that they're eager to settle. They want to come up with a contract. They want to write these things down. And he also says, we want a lawyer. Um, because we want to make sure that these things actually happen. Um, and so the state goes to Nikki Schwartz. Mm. Um, Close relative. Right, yeah. correct. Um, and they say, hey, these inmates want a lawyer. Do you want to do this? 
And he's like, yeah, he's actually had a lot of experience with prison administration. So he's like, sure, I'll do this. So he's able to go meet up with some of the inmates. So they like pull a table up on both sides of the fence. And one of each of the like main groups, um, like one representative from the Black Gangster Disciples, the Black Muslims and the Aryan Brotherhood come out and they meet with Nikki Schwartz. And together they come up with this 21 point contract. Um, And they ask Nikki, like, is this legally binding when we sign it and the state sign it? Do they have to uphold it? And he goes, of course not. You're holding people hostage. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, what world are you in? Yeah. They're like, anything that anyone agrees to in this situation is coerced, is under duress. Right. They do not have to do anything they say. Of course, though, the lawyer, if I'm the lawyer, I'd be like, yep, 100% binding. Uh Cool. Let's get those eyes dotted, T's crossed. But he had also, like, he has experience dealing with prisons and the Department of Corrections. So he has seen all of these things that need to change. So he's like, even though he's like, this is not the way to do it. He wants to see some of these things changed too. Um, So he tells them like, no, it's not legally binding, but I've talked to them and they said that they give me their word that they're going to uphold these things. Mm -hmm. So the inmates are like, we don't love it. We'd really (laughs) like for this to be legally binding, but I guess we'll take it. So um, they write up this 21 point contract you can find it if you Google it. I didn't feel like reading them all out because that's 21 things. You don't want to hear me just read from a paper. Um, so Tate even looks over this and he says like, yeah, these are things we probably should have already been doing. <laughs> but yeah. like there are a lot of other prisons that were farther along in terms of like organization and stuff that they absolutely should have been doing. Like Tate is kind of like, we should have been doing this, but also when I got here, it was complete anarchy here. Um, But still like some of the things that weren't the fault of Lucasville were like, there were two inmates to a cell built for one. Like there was already this whole like countrywide overcrowding of prisons, which is still an issue. Right. Um, But it just goes to show that like, obviously there was something wrong. If the warden is like, yeah, we probably should have been doing these things that these prisoners are rioting about. Um, so just quick, a couple of the things that this 21 point contract is trying to protect is they're trying to protect them from cruel and unusual punishment, overcrowding, and they now are really concerned with retaliation. So they're worried, like, if you send us to another prison, like the guards there are going to retaliate against us. Um, and finally on the 11th day, April 22nd, 1993, the inmates and the Department of Corrections come to an agreement and the inmates um, are evacuated and they all come out calmly carrying their belongings in trash bags um, and all five of the remaining hostages are released. Wow. Um, and one of the, the guards that I mentioned earlier, Mike Hensley, um, who's interviewed on this Netflix show, um, I think that he at the end is with the group, the black gangster disciples. And one of them comes to him and say, Hey, we're evacuating. Like, get your stuff. We're going to go. And he's like, I don't believe you. Like you're taking me somewhere. You're going to kill me. And he's like, no, really we're leaving. We're, we're done. And he's like, okay, then I'm going to walk out with my hands around your neck. Like, let me walk out. And if something happens, you're going down with me. I'm going to strangle you. Wow. And the guy's like, 
Okay. So he walks out with his hands wrapped around this inmate's neck and they're free. And he's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. But that's just such a crazy story of like smart thinking too. Of like, I don't trust you. I'm going to do this. You're going down with me. Um, And at the end, one of the inmates locks the doors and throws the key on the roof as kind of one final like, (laughs) gotcha. Yeah. Um, And so at the end of all of this, um, they like disperse all the prisoners throughout different prisons throughout the state. Obviously, they can't go back there because it's completely destroyed. Um, Again, like I said, you got to watch this show and look at all the footage because it's crazy. They had set like booby traps and they pulled all the bunks out to create mazes. One of the guys in there was even like a Vietnam vet and knew how to make bombs out of like batteries. So he like made explosives to put places so that like if they were like raided, they would like it would take um, the police a long time to get to them. So they would like know. Um, And it said that all of the damage was worth 40 million dollars. Which is probably about how much it cost to build it. it like yeah. in, in the 70s, it cost $23 million yeah. to build. Um, they collected 1,200 pieces of physical evidence. Um, and even with all the evidence, the Department of Corrections used mainly inmate testimony to determine who was responsible for Valang did Camp's death and the conspiracy to kill those inmates. Yeah. Um, and... They had 32 inmates' testimonies, and they ended up sentencing five men to death. So the men that they end up sentencing to death... For the the guard's death or for for the eight For both. For both, okay. And the conspiracy to start a riot. Okay. So Sadiq Hassan, George Skates, um, Jason Robb, Keith Lamar, (coughs) and James were. Um, And so the the lawyer, Nikki Schwartz, who was representing the inmates... um, I watched an interview of his also, um, and he says that he's really concerned about the the state sentencing those five men to death because those were basically the leaders of those three groups, and they were the ones who were talking to the Department of Corrections to come to an agreement. Mm. And so he says, if we have another riot like this, people aren't going to want to come forward because right. the ones who are trying to facilitate peace are sentenced to death. Mm. Um, so that's the Lucasville prison riot of 1993. Wow. It's nuts. It's the longest prison riot that had deaths that had fatalities. Um, there's an, there was another riot in Georgia, I think somewhere in the South. I don't remember. I should have written it down that lasted 30 minutes longer than this (laughs) one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's a good it's crazy. one. I've seen, I haven't seen the captive episode on it, but I saw like another like mini like doc yeah. on it a few years ago. And it's like, you also have to think about, you know, the like 1700 inmates who are there who are like, I didn't sign up for this. Right. Like, I didn't ask for this to happen. Yeah. And, but I'm in the crosshairs of it. Yeah. And, and like, obviously like the death of that prison guard and of those eight 
like quote unquote mm-hmm. snitches is indefensible, right? Correct. And like that's terrible. But I today is like on the day we're recording, it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yeah. And I keep coming back to that quote of his. It's like you deplore the demonstrations that are taking place in Birmingham, yet you have failed to um, express the same kind of uh, of like concern over the conditions that led to the demonstrations. Yeah. Right. And obviously King is talking about like peaceful demonstrations in Birmingham, but obviously like there was a a like. Re- the prison system in the United States and the state of mass incarceration and like the inhumane treatment of prisoners is a very real issue. And it's an election year. It's uh, 2020, not just the presidential election, but local elections, state elections that are really important that we all vote in because like those are real people's lives um, who, who are affected by the state of our criminal justice system. Yeah. And even though like, those 20 the 21 point contract like they have upheld some of the things but not all of them and even the ones that they did like like the overcrowding and the retaliation like they didn't fix it like they might have changed it and helped it for a couple years in one prison but overcrowding is a real issue it's a huge issue because especially with the privatization of prisons yeah. like the more people that private prisons can fit in a facility the more money they're getting from the federal government which private private prisons are evil like full stop yeah um but yeah like we have a family friend who's in prison in texas and uh Dang. yeah it's been in the news like that I think it's like the ACLU or like some civil rights group is trying to get it so that the prison turns on the air conditioning in this like overcrowded men's prison in deep Texas. Texas, Yeah. You know, and um, like it's heinous. It is heinous the way that these things are run in, in the United States. Um, So again, while like killing people is indefensible um, in terms of like, Right. right there's still riot. some like like basic ba- human needs and basic human like dignity and yeah did you watch orange is the new black i i started watching it okay. and just couldn't really get into it that's fair like the the last few of their seasons was were not their strongest it's also it's filthy um yeah. but it is because it's based on like the uh, it's based on it's inspired by a true story and yeah. like the woman who did who went to prison that piper's character is based on like was a consulting producer and whatnot um i like this show is brilliant and i think one of like the most important shows of our time because like the nuanced presentation of people and crime yeah. and the issues behind mass incarceration and power and who has it and who doesn't and like the real genius of that show is that like you see everyone's humanity, like from the warden to the guards to the prisoners. And like, no one is really better than the other, except for like a few outliers. It's like, Oh, you're clearly bad, but it's like everyone, everyone's humanity is just as complicated as the last person. Um, which I think is like, it's just very brilliant, but like this good and bad person just happens, you know, to be a guard and this good and bad person just happens to be a prisoner. And there's really not that much difference between them. Um, ooh, so good story. I know. That's a really good one. Lucasville. 93, you said? Yeah. Wow. You got a silver lining for us? <sighs> I have a, well, I mean, like, none of the stories right. we tell. You have a happy story about yeah, crime? Yeah, I have a, I have a kitten and ponies and unicorn story. Ooh. Um, no, I just. It makes me nervous. <laughs> no, Emily and I, when we, when we talk about which stories we're going to pair which, which, with which stories sometimes it's like oh if you have a real downer and I have one that like obviously is still going to be a downer because it's true crime but like maybe has like a 
one redeeming quality about yeah, it. Like it doesn't you, end with us talking about how terrible our prison system right, is right now. Right. So we try and pair them that way. So, and so when I tell you what story this is, you're going to be like, are you kidding? Oh, That's no. the one you thought. But just know that I have my own twist on this. Okay. That will, it's a terrible, terrible story I'm about to tell you, but I have my own twist. Okay. Um. So and I also need to, for this story, I leaned heavily on an, an article in the guardian by a writer named Alex Hannaford. Um, so I'm going to tell you the story of Warren Jeffs and the FLDS, the um, what's the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ okay, of Latter-day okay. Saints. But really um, I don't care so much about Warren Jeffs as I do about Brielle Decker. I don't know this Warren Jeffs. Oh, you'll, you'll hear you'll Okay. Okay. It'll come back to you as I tell you. Okay. So over for over a hundred years, the cities of Hildale, Oh, sorry. Hildale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. The area... Colorado City, Arizona? It's true. It's a real That city. is confusing. Uh, very confusing. Um, an area collectively known as Short Creek have been home to the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as FLDS, a religious sect that split from the Mormon Church in 1930, mainly surrounding disagreements about the issue of polygamy. The FLDS teaches that having multiple wives, each of whom is assigned to a man, right? So there's one man and multiple wives, not like an open, no, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah polyamorous. Because women shouldn't get multiple husbands. No, absolutely not. Um, so the, the FLDS teaches that that's ordained by God. Uh, so the FLDS has an estimated 10,000 members, most of whom live in Colorado City, um, Colorado City, Arizona, and Hildale, Utah, with some followers living near El Dorado, Texas, and in South Dakota, Colorado, Nevada, British Columbia, and Mexico. So, in 1955, Warren Jeffs was born to Rulon Jeffs and Marilyn Jeffs. Rulon became the president of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1986, and at his death, he was also, like, very old when he died, well into his 90s, at his death, he had 20 wives and approximate, Holy. and that's just like surviving wives. So if any of his wives died on him at any point, that number was higher. Um, he had 20 wives and approximately 60 children. Holy crap. But some former FLDS members claim that at times he has had, a, he had as many as 87 wives. Yeah. So where, ha, at times, well, like if people die, yeah. I don't know, he lived to be really old. And oh, yeah. uh, where, we're in the outskirts where? of Utah. No, but like, where do you put all those people? You live in a compound. How do you have the money for that? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. So, blah, blah, blah. So, is this a cult story? I mean, I mean, okay. it is a cult. Like, okay. FLDS but is a cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, Warren Jeffs was raised outside of Salt Lake City with his dad with all the wives. And for more than 20 years, he was the... Is this coming Wait, back to you? no, no. I forgot that Warren is related to this. Yes, to so Rulon, yeah, Rulon is his dad. So he grew up with like he's got like fifty nine brothers and sisters. He probably and doesn't even know all of them. Dang. Okay, back in so back in the story. He was raised outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, and for more than twenty years, he was the principal at Alta Academy, an FLDS private school at the mouth of Little Cottonwood Canyon. He was known for being, quote, a stickler for the rules and for discipline, end quote. I feel like you kind of have to be a stickler for the rules. And discipline to be is in. kind of the brand. Yeah. yeah. So when Rulon Jeffs died, Warren became his successor uh, with his official title in the FLDS church becoming 
president and prophet, seer and revelator, which is like that's the title that his dad held. And apparently, I, I don't think it's like, and the son necessarily takes it on, but I think it was like he had that kind of standing in the community. I think I maybe know this story. You for sure do. Does part of it take place in Salt Lake City? Kind of. Well, some of it. Not all of it. So I just really want to ask you like, oh, is it this? <laughs> Wait, this, is it this that? or that or the other thing? So within a week of assuming his, this title, he had married all but two of his father's wives. Ooh. Uh, one, the two uh, that he hadn't married, one refused to marry him and was therefore kept from ever marrying again, while the other fled the FLDS community. Go ahead. That just is nuts. Yeah. So the prophet within the FLDS church is the only person with the authority to perform marriages. So he was responsible for assigning wives to husbands, and he also had the authority to discipline male church members by reassigning their wives, children, and homes to another man. You can reassign children? You can reassign oh children and wives. So scary. Because the more, like, some of them who had a lot of wives had, like, numerous homes, right? So you could just, like, that reassign that home to another man. So this guy holds all the power when it comes to marriage and family. Nobody should have that kind of power. No, 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 no. So soon after he assumed the role of prophet, he began splitting families apart, taking young girls as his own brides mm. and excommunicating members, mainly young men from the church. He banned socializing as well as contact with the outside world. So getting dark. Yeah. Now we're going to go for like fun or did he have reasons? Oh, because he wanted all the young girls for himself. And so he was like sending men away, Got like it. total power and pedophilia. Gross. So to go through a timeline, in May of 2005, a Utah court froze an FLDS trust, which included all of the sex land, houses, and other assets, which was well worth over $100 million. Did you say sex land? Like S-E-C, oh. like the secta. Like sex. Did you say oh, sex land? land? Emily's drunk. So I am fine. So the Utah court freezes this account, which is okay. worth over, or this trust, worth sex over. Land. Sex land. Yes, that's what it was titled. So while the trust was supposed to be established for the benefit of all the members of the church, people were saying that Warren had been using it to punish dissenters by kicking them out of their homes. So that's why it gets frozen. Then in June of 2005, Warren is indicted in Arizona on felony charges of arranging a marriage between a 16-year-old girl and a 28-year-old man who is already married. A state warrant is issued for his arrest, although by this time he's kind of gone underground and he hasn't been seen in public for months. Then April of 2006, Jeffs was charged in Utah as an accomplice to rape for performing a marriage between a 14-year-old girl and an adult man. Ooh. And then because he's still like on the DL in May of 2006, the FBI placed him on its top 10 most wanted Dang. list. Yeah. In, in terms of fugitives. So then April of 2006, he's put on the list. In August of 2006, Warren Jeffs was pulled over uh, on uh, Interstate 15 in Nevada, strictly because a highway trooper noticed that the plates on his Cadillac Escalade the temporary plates weren't visible. So it wasn't like, oh, oh that's Warren Jeffs. It's like, hey, your plates aren't visible. So in the car was one of his wives and his brother. Also in the car, well, as well as Warren. Also in the car were four computers, 16 cell phones, 
disguises, including three wigs and 12 pairs of sunglasses, and more than $55,000 in cash. Dang. Yeah. He was on the run, as Jay-Z yeah. and Beyonce say. So in September of 2007, he's found guilty on two counts of rape by an accomplice because he's been marrying young girls to old, old men um, in Utah, and he's sentenced to 10 years in prison. In, you know, this is where it really gets weird and twisty and turny. In April of 2008, um, a family violence hotline gets this phone call alleging all this terrible abuse at one of the ranches uh, that belonged to the FLDS called Yearning for Zion. I mean, more than like I'm being married off to an adult. Right. More than that. Which um, is, yeah. And so the Yearning for Zion Ranch is in El Dorado, Texas. And so the feds raid it and remove 416 children. Um, and then 130 women voluntarily leave the compound. Like the cops show up and they're like, yes, I'll leave. Yeah, take me okay, with you. Okay, I'm done. I'm out of here. But in 2008, the Texas Third Court of Appeals rules that the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services illegally removed the children from their families. Because it turns out that the woman who made this call has previously been charged with making false police reports and had nothing to do with the FLDS community. Like, this is her weird hobby. So even though there's some bad stuff going on on this ranch, like, the woman who called it in actually has no idea and, like, made a false report. Just was like, let me pick a random address. She And she had done it to other, like, had engaged in this that's kind of act so strange so isn't that super bizarre and i could not mention it because that was a big yeah. deal with all this so still in july of 2008 even with all that a texas grand jury indicts warren jeffs and other flds members on bigamy and sexual assault charges because um, in a raid that was carried out on one of his compounds it became clear to authorities that jeffs had taken multiple child brides and had been sexually Ugh. abusing them and other members of the community which like at the time, I guess and now too, is polygamy a federal crime? Is it? I don't know if it's a if is it's, it a state crime. I couldn't tell you, but I think it's also very hard to prove. Yeah, if you're not, if you're not, um, trying to like sign up for, I like I don't know. Yeah, my guess is that it's easy to get away with if you're not trying to get multiple marriage licenses. But That's I also true. I also don't know anything. Yeah, I've never tried. So. Yeah, but marrying, having sex with children is quite illegal. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Both the too. state yeah, and the for federal sure, level. For sure. So in August of 2011, Jeffs is convicted of sexual assault of a child under the age of 14 and a child under the age of 17, and he's sentenced to life in prison, which is great news because originally he had only gotten 10 years. Yeah. Now on to our hero. Heroes! Brielle Decker. So, Brielle Decker was the 11th of 14 siblings. Uh, and she was born into and grew up in the FLDS church. 14 children. 11 That's of nuts. 14. By the time she turned 18, Warren Jeffs was the FLDS prophet and chose Brielle to be his 65th wife. Holy crap. I just don't... I don't even know 65 people. I for sure don't like 65 people. Yeah. So guess what, though? He chose her to be his 65th wife from prison where he was serving, already serving a life sentence, as well as actively controlling the church. I feel like even the FLDS has to think 
Uh, if you're in jail, sorry, you got to forfeit he's your the, power. He's the prophet. He's the chosen one. So she's 18. Warren Jeffs chooses her as the 65th wife. The community is still so committed to him that like her community's like, okay, this is yeah. the deal. So she was moved into one of his many homes where she lived with 30 of his other wives. She was deeply unhappy with her circumstances. So she hid herself yeah, away. Understandable. Right. She hid herself away and refused to visit him in prison to consummate the marriage. Good. From prison, he retaliated, sending FLDS leaders to intimidate, drug, and even threaten <gasps> to kill her. This guy's like a grade A psycho. Yeah. So after three years of torment and many attempts to break free, Brielle manages to escape the house but with a screwdriver and like screwing a window pane off of a window. Bless you. <sighs> I knew I wasn't going to give up whether I made it out or not, she says. Nothing was going to stop me. So after getting out and starting a new life, she learns that she had the right to property of the, that the state of Utah had seized from her incarcerated ex-husband. At the time of Jeff's arrest, the financial trust that the FLDS had established to share its members' assets, as you'll remember, was valued at well over $100 million yeah. uh, because they owned most of the homes and buildings in Short Creek. But in 2005, the state of Utah seized control of it and began leasing houses to former members, charging them only $100 a month. Dang. Right? That went into a communal yeah. fund. So Decker, so Brielle Decker asked if this trust, if she could buy Jeff's mega mansion, Warren Jeff's mega mansion, explaining that she hoped to turn it into a place that could serve the community. The state gave her a discount of $800,000, which meant that she only needed to raise the remaining like $400,000. Oh gosh. A faith-based faith charity in Los Angeles, the Dream Center, got wind of this, wow. offered her the funds. And agreed to manage the mansion as a refuge. Wow. Yeah. So now she and a team have transformed Warren Jeff's 44-room mansion into the Short Creek Dream Center, a community organization that provides housing, counseling, job skills, and other vital resources to adults and children who have left the FLDS nice. church. Even though it was his, his house, it still feels good, Brielle says. Yeah. Since it opened in 2017, the refuge has provided meals and safety for women escaping the cult with their children, as well as people from nearby towns struggling with addiction or mental health issues. Some weeks, they've seen 150 former church members attend their weekly potluck dinner. Dang. Brielle Decker believes that Short Creek can become a place of healing, that just as she did, the town can start again. I miss so much valuable time, but I've learned it's not all bad. You take your experiences and you do the best you can with them. So that's the story of Warren Jeffs, but it's really the story of Brielle Decker yeah. taking those lemons and making lemonade and serving that lemonade to her community. Yes. That's yeah. a great silver lining. <laughs> there was finally wow. a story Ryan could get behind. A standing ovation from our executive producer. So Brielle Decker, I'm sure I didn't look this up, but I'm sure if you Googled like the Short Creek Refuge, you could find yeah. a way to donate to the work that they're doing there. That's incredible. The Dream Center. The Dream is Center. That a Christian organization. It is. It is. It That's is. incredible. Listen, we're not off in the news for good things, so I'll take I it. I know. Yeah. So Warren Jeffs is v creepy. There's a lot of, about him v, out v there. He did, good thing he's in prison. Yeah, he did a lot of terrible things, but it sounds like there is some good coming yeah. out of the lives of those he yeah. abused. 
Gabrielle Decker, That's man. awesome. I'm so glad that we finished with that story. <laughs> it's a good, yeah. Yeah, for, good, for Ryan's sake, if nothing for else. For Ryan's sake. <laughs> for, uh, for our five listeners, mm. you can now go about your day thinking about Brielle. Yes, and absolutely. And the Short Creek Refuge. Refuge. Or Short Creek D- Dream Center. The yeah. Short Creek dream center because when you think about it if you're a woman like fleeing the flds and like that's where oh you gosh, grew up yeah and like maybe like you don't have a modern education you don't have a driver's license you don't have you don't have like a stable parent right you don't have anywhere to go situation like i feel like no matter what i could be in any situation and i could go to my parents mm-hmm. but like if i had grown up with like knowing who my biological mom and dad are, but like living in a house where my dad also had a, a ton of other wives, like it would feel like uber sketchy to like, hey, mom, I need help. You know, it's also like, though, the only life that anyone there has ever known, right. you know? Yeah. I remember being in high school when they raided the ranch and it being this very big deal when it came out that like whoops you know like yeah this phone call was really scary and like alerted a lot of people but it was also this woman who was like obviously yeah off her rocker that's, anyway that's he's still in prison he's still nuts um yeah but uh yeah i i think i remember ryan our mutual friend from college jen um had like one of her roommates actually like what she does for a living now is like rescue women from polygamy in like the remote that's parts amazing. of Utah which I'm like yes that's yeah. the best anyway so yeah that's the story of Short Creek Ranch that's awesome uh now we move on to the point in our show where we detox from uh the horror and our alcohol with a detox question where we try to get to know each other better and maybe I don't know have you our dear listeners our moms and our friends that we forced to listen to this get to know us better so what's that question tonight em so i got a question from a fan oh Um, does it the fan's name rhyme with ann schmady no oh we have another fan interesting um his his instagram handle is book of eli pachico hmm doesn't ring a bell yeah i don't know yeah well eli pachico we're really happy that you're enjoying the podcast listening his Question, if you could interview anyone, fictional or real, dead or alive, whomst would it be? Whomst would it be? Well, thank you for that question. Yeah. Uh, ooh, that's hard. Yeah. That's, that's a big pool. I knew about this question and I should have thought about it. That is a very big pool to be drawing from. Um, ooh. Yeah, that's a lot. Like... Oh. My initial thought is that I want to interview somebody like the person who killed John Binet so that right. A, I could know who he would it know was. who it is. And then also B, get answers of like why, how, when, yeah. where. Yeah. Okay, here's the kind of random like thoughts that went through uh-huh. my head. <laughs> Michelle Obama. Ooh. But then it went from Michelle Obama to like, okay, maybe I need to interview someone like from history you know who's like answers we don't have yeah or access to or can't get so then i went Anne frank Mm. which would be a good one yeah um and then i went joan of arc so that is where that is kind of the trajectory that my mind took me on um 
but I like your I like your thought of like who's someone that we like need some answers from yeah you know rather than just like tell me your wisdom um actually you know what because it is Martin Luther King Jr. Day I'm gonna say MLKJ because people this day kind of frustrates me sometimes because a lot of people really sanitize his legacy yeah and um like Kelly what's her face today Kelly Kellyanne Conway said that Martin Luther King Jr. would have opposed Trump's impeachment today and I wanted to be like get your name get his name out your mouth um and like people love to be like well MLKJ would have and it's like okay listen if you've only heard that I have a dream speech once in your junior history class and haven't actually read his work or know anything about his activism how about you don't get to assign that um because I think he was and also like a thing that is brought to mind today that is important to remember is he could very well still be alive today. Like it, right. it's not like he was taken down because like he had a heart attack. No, like he was killed right. early in his life. He would be like, n- he would be like 91 or 92. Dang. Um, so I'd say MLK- Betty White Betty is still White alive. Is Betty what, White 99? is 99, 98, 98. She was born before sliced bread was invented. She was indeed. And you know what? She, that she is an American treasure more than sliced bread. I'd say. And she is like still kicking it. She's crushing like it's not it. like she's like ninety eight and like oh she's old. No, like, she's crushing it. She's gonna live at least another decade. It feels like Betty White twenty twenty. You know Betty White twenty twenty. Who would you interview him? Um, my first my first thought to all of these is Jesus. Well, as that I feel like has to be taken off the table. Right, kind of a. It's more of a um knee-jerk reaction i'll tell your bible professors you said so though yes thank you can you tell jesus i said that i will let him know you know yes good little christian girl (laughs) but i think i'm gonna stick with my john Bonet's killer it's a good one because i feel like it would answer a ton of questions and i feel like tons of people focus a lot of energy on that Mm -hmm. if i could answer that question for them i'd be very popular you would be very popular. And then you could free them up to go solve exactly. some other cold cases. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good one. So, like, really, I'd be a hero. You already are to a hero. everyone. You're a hero to me, Emily. This wine. <laughs> Please uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can yes. find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Anywhere you get your podcasts. We're on Instagram at Lightweight True Crime. You can email us at LW. True crime, true crime at gmail.com at gmail.com and maybe someday we'll make a twitter but for now for now listen we've got we have jobs yeah we have things we have to jobs do. we have children emily keeps another human alive i'm another I one of her children. children alive okay ryan needs a lot of work and then one night a week you keep three children alive you're right okay <laughs> <laughs> this has been real uh cheers cheers <laughs>